What are the seven deadly sins of economics? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with James Audison. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with James Audison. James is the John T. Ryan Jr. Professor of Business Ethics and Rex and Alice A. Martin Faculty Director of the Notre Dame Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership in the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. He's also a senior scholar at the Fund for American Studies, a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, and past president of the Association of Private Enterprise Education. James lectures widely on Adam Smith, classical liberalism, political economy, business ethics, and related issues, including for the Fund for American Studies, the Adam Smith Society, the Acton Institute, the Institute for Humane Studies, and the Tikva Fund. One of his books, Seven Deadly Economic Sins, Obstacles to Prosperity and Happiness Every Citizen Should Know, is what our conversation will be based on today. James, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you on. So James, each of our episodes is based on a question. and We go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today for you is, what are the seven deadly sins of economics? And of course, we'll explore those. But first, I want to focus on a couple of things you said at the beginning of your book, actually. So one thing I like that you talked about in the preface was how many economists disagree on many things, actually. But then there's a lot that would be gained if we focused on, on the areas of agreements. Could, could you talk a bit about that and your thought process in the preface? Because this is absolutely true, right? People often do think of economists as people that we're supposed to listen to, but they can't agree on anything. But there are areas of agreement. Sure, yeah. Um, and that's uh, actually one of the main reasons uh, that prompted me to write the book in the first place. Um, yeah. So, you know, everybody knows that economists, you know, they vote for different parties. They can't tell you what the market's going to do. They don't know what the interest rates are going to be or when the next recession will be or when the next recession happens, what we should do about it. They disagree about a lot of things. Um, and But that doesn't mean they disagree about everything. And I think the situation is somewhat analogous to medicine. You know, think about uh, medical doctors. Um, there's a lot of disagreement about, you know, which drugs should you use to treat um, various things, um, you know, what, uh, how to treat psychiatric illnesses or even what counts as a psychiatric illness. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, there aren't um, overlapping areas of consensus among medical doctors, and especially with the more routine things, you know, the more uh, routine problems that a person might face, the, routine, um, the diagnosis is clear, what you should do is clear. I think there's something similar also with uh, economics. So, you know, economics, the economists have famously disagree about just about everything. I think it was President Henry Truman who um, said um, that he was looking for a one-handed economist so that he would never have to hear the phrase, on the other hand. Um, you know, and there are lots of jokes about economists in those days. But um, I think what um, what tends to have a lot of salience in sort of the public consciousness about um, economists is two things. One, that there are lots of disagreements, which is true. Um, but then also, if, if you actually try to look at what economists write, so professional trained economists, if you look at a professional economics journal, for example, you open it anywhere and, you know, what are you going to see? You're going to see a lot of mathematical equations. Um, and it's not clear at all, you know, unless you're, you have training, uh, it's going to be very difficult for you to even interpret what you're looking at, let alone figure out how that might relate to your life. Um, so I think because of those two things, people tend not to pay a lot of attention to economists and what economists say. Um, but I think that's um, a bit of a mistake. And the reason is because there are still many other areas where economists tend to have overlapping consensus. Now, it's not unanimous agreement about anything. Um, but there are some things that economists believe they have figured out, really economists across the political spectrum, um, there, there's widespread agreement. And here's the interesting thing, and this is what um, I try to um, really press on in the book, is that many of the areas where they do have agreement um, are things that are, on the one hand, a bit counterintuitive. Um, so many people don't seem to believe them, or we, have, we seem to have instincts um, you know, in different directions. But um, if we listen to those few areas of, um, of overlapping consensus, I think those things could actually stand to uh, really make a, a positive, a big and positive difference in our lives. So, um, so that's why I sort of frame the book around, you know, what are, I call them seven deadly economic sins, but these are things that are based on um, pretty widespread economic consensus. 
um, but presented in a way that I think you don't have to be a trained economist to actually uh, understand and to see how they would relate both to your own personal life and then also to evaluation of policy. Right. And, and for those who haven't had a chance to grab the book or, or haven't read it yet or, or aren't familiar with it, we definitely encourage you to do do so. But w- w- one thing I'm hearing there, James, like again, for those who aren't familiar with it, is that uh, and again, this is one thing that I really like about the book is that because you're looking for those overlapping areas of consensus and you've structured the seven deadly sins that people are going to read in the book, in, in that way, it becomes helpful for someone thinking about economics in general. Like, you know, for example, you're not writing some sort of partisan book that says, oh, here's the seven deadly economic sins from my point of, you know, partisan view of this political party. You're actually talking about the discipline itself and making it fun for people to read about and actually get, get some economics going in their own head while also understanding the seven deadly sins. Yeah, thank Thank you. Yeah. And, and uh, I'll tell you also, you know, my own, just for full disclosure, my own um, training is uh, as a philosopher. My PhD is in philosophy, not economics. Um, and, you know, I, ca- I came to economics um, really sort of um, in an indirect route. I wrote my, uh, my PhD dissertation on Adam Smith's moral theory, not his economics, uh, but on his moral theory. Uh, but that got me interested in the, you know, and what came to be understood as the economic policies or the economic theories that were coming out of the 18th century and in the 19th century. So I come to economics more as a student of its um, of its history, um, and I've come to appreciate uh, its insights in that direction uh, and, um, from that direction. Um, and so my hope, part of my hope, is that um, you know that people won't be so scared off if they don't already have training in economics. Um, you know, I think some of these important foundational insights can be expressed in a way that doesn't require, um, you know, uh, doing regressions or looking, you know, or dusting off calculus. If you ever had calculus, you know, you don't have to have any of that stuff. I think um, some of these insights um, can be understood um, in much more straightforward way. And in in fact, I would add, um, you know, in some respects, I take Adam Smith sort of as my inspiration, Um, not necessarily because I agree with everything that Adam Smith said, but um, because Smith um, I think married or attempted to marry moral philosophy on the one hand um, with what um, the principles of economic reasoning as he was coming to understand them. Um, but he did it in a way that uh, and expressed them in a way that uh, just about every any educated reader could understand, regardless of your particular training. Well, in that same vein or similar vein, I want to call attention to something you said that you also said at the beginning of the book, which is that many folks find themselves often with strong opinions or ideas when it comes to economics, even having no formal training, but but even then even informal training, perhaps they haven't even looked into these concepts that much themselves or just haven't really taken an interest in it. But if an economic uh, discussion comes up, or, or maybe it's a political issue about the economy, people find themselves sort of w- with strong opinions, or at least a working idea of how the world works and what their economic point of view is. H- how do you think that happens? How do you think that there are so many people out there that think, hey, like, this is the way you know, the answer should be for this economic issue when even, even they themselves might admit they haven't looked too much into this stuff. Is it just through osmosis in our culture? What, what's your thought process there? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you run down, a, you could run down a roster of uh, topics. Um, you know, should we increase the minimum wage? Um, should we have tariffs on Chinese goods? Uh, should we raise taxes on this group or that group? Or, you know, people tend to have very strong opinions about these things. Um, but many people haven't looked uh, haven't investigated what economists have had to say about it one way or the other. So your question is, you know, why do they have such strong opinions? Um, I think maybe a, there are a couple of reasons for it, and I am speculating a, a little bit, but I think there might be a couple of reasons. Uh, one is I think it's connected just sort of with our general political tribalism. Um, you know, we, we tend to, um, I th- and I think this is might be increasing actually, but we tend to think of ourselves, align ourselves with a particular camp in politics. Um, you know, I have my I have my team, and you have your team, and um, and once you identify yourself with a team, then whatever that team says is the one that you adopt, and so that becomes uh, you know so whatever your team says about raising the minimum wage, let's say, or what we should do about immigration or something, that just becomes the one you adopt, and if you're and if um, you strongly identify yourself with a political team. Um, then that the strength of that is going to transfer to the economic uh, views too. So I think that's part of it. Um, but I also think there's another uh, aspect, and this is maybe a little bit more speculative, and that is that um, economics, and there are a few other areas sort of of human inquiry where I think this might also be the case, uh, but economics is one of those areas where it seems like it should be pretty straightforward, and it seems like we have kind of instincts or impulses um, that seem common sense to us. And one of the th- one of the things I think that's been frust- that is frustrating to economics as a discipline is that 
some of the things they've discovered are in fact counterintuitive. They, they don't fit in with, our, with what we think must be the case. Um, and although it doesn't take you know, a lot of economic training to see how the discipline itself might depart from what we just sort of commonsensically assume or the way we look at the world, um, nevertheless, I think, um, you know, people think it's, um, that economics is easy to understand and anybody, and you don't need to really give any thought to it. And so whatever they think, you know, whatever the, the first common sense thing that, that, uh, occurs to them is, um, they're going to think it must be true. And it's interesting that the, you know, the, the concept of rational ignorance, uh, you know, as an economic concept is actually what makes us ignorant of economics or many <laughs> of us, true. I should say, like we're ra- it's rational, it's rational ignorance that, that makes us ignorant. So maybe people, some people, if they're listening to this and maybe haven't thought too much about economics before, we should say that the economist would actually understand that and say, hey, that's a rational decision in a way anyway. No, exactly right. Yeah. Um, and there are many other areas too. I mean, you know, I use a cell phone. I mean, I, I'm sure you do too. I have a smartphone. I have absolutely no idea how it actually communicates with the world and retrieves basically the entire world's information into my hand. Um, but that's a good thing because, um, not knowing that enables me to focus on other things that I might actually be able to know something about or, or make some improvements on. Um, so the division of labor in, you know, in the economy or in, um, in the market, um, is just as important in knowledge too. So it's a good thing that I don't have to know about those things because it enables me to do other things. And one final thing before we jump into some, some teasers for the good kinds of things that people can get to thinking about and learn about from your book. Um, is this, so you note that understanding these fallacies and how to avoid them and basically avoiding being, being sinful economically, if you will, um, can actually help you in both individual and public life. So I want you to unpack that up just a little bit, because I think, um, so many people do think of economic issues as things politicians talk about. So it's naturally like a public life issue. You know what I mean? So it's it's sort of like, oh, people are like, what's happening with the economy? This is clearly some sort of a public life issue or an issue of politics. But, but you say, yes, that, you know, understanding economics, it's from my interpretation, you're saying understanding economics and avoiding these fallacies is important for you to decipher if a politician is talking about nonsense or even is correct. But on the other hand, you're saying this is just good stuff for just individual thinking as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, these sins apply, as you say, I think they apply um, not only to evaluation of policies, but uh, to our our personal and private lives. And here's one way to think about it. Um, You know, um, each individual person, you and I, and everybody else, everybody who's listening, we, you know, we have limited resources. And by resources, I don't just mean money. I mean, that's part of it. But um, we also have limited resources in things like time. So and, and in some ways, time might be our most precious resource because, you know, our, our time on Earth started at a certain point, And I'm sorry to say it will end at a certain point. And what, however much time you have between those two points, that's all you're going to have. So what, so what that means is, um, and this is sort of you know, one of the um, steps, or I don't know, I wouldn't call it an exercise exactly, but sort of a, you know, a process of thinking that I go through in the book is, you know, once, you, once you realize that, that I have limited time, just take time for, um, for, the, um, for an example. Um, if I have limited time, that means that any year or month or week or day that I spend doing one thing is time that is gone forever, that I cannot spend doing something else. Um, so that means that, you know, it's gone for the, it, it, for the entire history of the universe. If I spend it, you know, doing this, it's gone forever. Um, so that fact that our time is limited means, um, that if there's anything we want to accomplish in our lives, um, then we need to figure out how to allocate our time to give us a better chance to achieve the most important things in our life, um, rather than the, the less important things. And if we, you know, if we start to think about, you know, let's make, let's make a list, let's make a rank list of the important things you know, as an individual, to me as an individual, to you as an individual, you know, what's the most important thing you want in life, second most, third most, and so on down the list. Once you realize that you can't achieve all of them um, because your resources are limited, well, then what you have to do is start thinking, okay, well, I want to dedicate my resources first to the most important thing, then second to the second most important thing, and so on down the list. And what I don't ever want to do, and this is a mistake I think we make all the time, and this is part of a, you know, kind of an economic sin, is that we'll dedicate resources to um, to goals we have that are further down our list of priorities at the expense of goals that are higher than uh, higher on our own list of priorities, and that I think is an, is an economic mistake. So one of the things that sort of the principles of economic reasoning, if you like, if you allow me to use a phrase like that, can help us uh, do is realize, okay, well, we do have limited resources. Um, and we do have goals we want to achieve in life. So let's think about what, um, how we rank those goals in relation to one another. And then let's start ordering 
our resources uh, according to those goals. Um, now, that doesn't say anything about whether the goals are good ones or bad ones. You know, maybe your number three should actually be number one or something. You know, that, that, so I'm not, not passing any kind of moral judgment on what the goals are. It's just saying you should have some sense of what your goals are and what their relative importance is to you um, and what trade-offs you're willing to make and what trade-offs you're not willing to make. And then begin to think about allocating your resources of time, talent, treasure, um, appropriately given that list. And so I think um, not making so a mistake we frequently make is not to really think hard about the relative ranking of our goals and um, not so much to ignore, but just not pay attention to the fact that we do have limited resources. Um, and so what that can lead to is in our personal lives, um, we have a kind of disordered um, allocation of our time and uh, time, talent, and treasure because we we spend it in ways that doesn't actually give us a chance of achieving what we think are the most important goals to us in our own lives. Right. Yeah. No. And I think that was an excellent example of how this this kind of thinking can help you in, in your personal life or in an individual life as well. And I think, and and this is a good thing. I think that segued us right into already covering one of the economic fallacies, as you talked about, uh, which was this idea that good is good enough. The idea that if something will lead to benefits or uh, or, or a gain, it should just be done. And and you kind of just explained that, right? As you were saying that the, you know this idea where if anything is going to have positive outcomes, again, whether it's in public life or in our private life. Well, then of course, let's let's say yes to that. But but as Steve Jobs actually once said, focus isn't saying yes to everything. Focus is actually saying no to many things and it's kind of in the same vein of what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's exactly right and you're and you're right to see that connection because um I, you know, a- ask anybody who's uh, busy, um what's one of the biggest problems they have is that well, there are too many things. You know, I have too many things I'm doing. Um, you know, you get invitations to do things and the impulse is, or you get asked to do things, the impulse is to say yes. So what, what that can mean is that, um, that we, you know, our time or, you know, whatever the resource we're spending, it could be money, but it could also be time, but it get, it can get dissipated um, because we can't actually figure out, well, how should we rank these things? Um, you know, what's the most important thing I should be working on? What's the second most important thing? And one of the mistakes I think, and this is the good is good enough fallacy. So if somebody says to you, Hey, I think we should go do this, whatever it is. Um, we should go do this. And, and um, let me give you a particular example. Um, so my son, uh, teenage son, a few years ago said to me, um, I think we should buy a Ferrari. He, he thought we should buy a Ferrari. And so he, he laid out all the reasons why we should buy a Ferrari, you know, all the good things that would happen, um, you know, and you can imagine what he would come up with a teenage boy, you know, what the Absolutely. kinds of things uh, that he might come up with, um, lays out all those things and then um, thinks that he's completed the case. <laughs> therefore, because there are all these good things that could ensue, therefore we should buy a Ferrari. Um, and so immediately what I said is, okay, no, I see those things, but the fact that you've pointed out good things that could happen from that doesn't mean we should do it because there are lots of good things we could do with our limited resources. For example, we could have a house to live in, <laughs> or maybe, uh, maybe you and your siblings might be able to go to college one day. Um, so, you know, once you start thinking, realizing that if I dedicate resources to this good thing, then that means those same resources cannot go to any other good thing. So the minute you realize that, you realize, oh, okay, so just leading to a good result is not good enough. What it has to be, before I actually decide to do it, it yes, it has to be lead to a good result. That's the first step. That's the necessary step, but it's not sufficient yet. What, in order to be sufficient, it has to be better than other alternatives. So you have to look at the other alternatives and compare them and say, well, um, you know, there might be a lot of things. And I'll give you one other quick example. Um, this is um, something I talk about with students. So I teach at a university, uh, University of Notre Dame, and I you know, talk to my students about this. You know, suppose you're a, you're a, um, a smart and energetic, enterprising undergraduate student. Um, there are many potential lines of work you could go into. Um, you know, maybe you could be a consultant. You could be an attorney. Maybe you could be a medical doctor. You, know, you have the capacity to do these things. Well, um, you can't do all of them. So which should you do? So if somebody says, well, if you go into, let's say, you know, into the law profession, you become a lawyer, you know, you'll make, you can make this much money and here, you know, whatever the other benefits might be, that doesn't yet settle the case because then you have to compare that to, well, if I do that, that means I'm giving up all those other lines of work that I could have gone into. Um, and before you know whether you should do that, you need to think about, well, what would be the benefit of me if I went into medical uh, medical profession or if I became an accountant or a consultant or something? So you have to compare them. And, and my argument is that, um, you know, just pointing out that something could lead to a good result isn't enough. It has to be better than those other potential benefits that your time, talent and treasure could lead to. And, and one thing I like about the way you explain that and, and, and pretty much actually when I'm, what I'm about to say, actually think applies to all, all of these fallacies. A lot of people might think 
as they're hearing that, like, well, this all makes sense. Uh, however, like, what are we actually going to do? Sit down and, like, actually do spreadsheets and weigh positive and negatives. But in reality, that's not the case, right? I think people actually do a bit of what you're saying every day. The, the most practical advice you could give to someone that isn't going to run a regression analysis on their own life is it's ultimately, and what I pulled from the book, too, and why I really like this part, which is just be more mindful of this stuff. That's really the takeaway, right? It's not as much about, as you said at the very beginning of chat, it's not as much about stats and, and becoming an economist in your own life. Maybe it's about that in a small way, though. Then that, that's about it. Yeah, no, uh, you you put your finger right on it. I mean, um, one of the things here's one of the kind of funny things that I think I've discovered um, as in being a professor. So, one of the concepts of ec- a central concept of economics, you get it in every microeconomics class. Just about every economist across the board understands and um, not only uh, believes that it's important, but understands its importance. And that's what's called opportunity cost. It's what we call opportunity cost. And so. What opportunity cost represents is the value to you of the most um, important foregone alternative. So um, if you think about, you know, if I have $5 in my pocket um, and I'm going to spend $5, I want to spend it on, say, a latte at the, co- at the coffee shop. Okay. Um, so the, um, the, the cost to you is not just the $5 you're giving to the lo- uh, for the latte, um, but it's also what's called the opportunity cost, which means all the other things you could have bought with that $5 that you are now not buying. So, you know, there's a million potential ones. You can't go, you know, over all of the indefinitely large, but, you know, you think about, well, if I weren't spending the $5 here, what would I actually, you know, what, what is the other thing I probably would have done? And if you think about, you know, maybe there's one or two things. If you think about those top one or two things, um, that opportunity cost is the, 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 the loss to you of the value that those other things could have given to you um, that you're giving up on to spend it in this way. And the reason I, the reason I bring up that example is because, um, you know, once you um, lay out the definition of opportunity cost and explain, you know, if you want to know whether this expenditure is the right one, you got to think about these other things you're giving up. Everybody says, oh yeah, sure. Of course that makes, that makes perfect sense. Obviously you have to do that. And then the minute students walk out of the class, it's like they totally forget it. I mean, it's it somehow they, they stop doing it. Um, and, you know, and so I think that's, you know, just sort of hammering that one thing uh, home it would be a great victory for economics as a discipline. But um, the reason it's so important is because um, oftentimes opportunity costs are higher than the value of what you actually spent your money on. Um, you know, because, you, you know, if something's salient and present right in front of you, um, you know, you're checking out of, at the grocery store. And you see, oh, there are a bunch of candy bars. And so you buy a couple of candy bars. You know, they're, they're right there. You know that you're going to enjoy them. It's very attractive. So you don't think to yourself, well, wait a minute. Those same $5 could have gone to this other thing that maybe actually in the long run is more important to me. Um, we just forget about it. And we don't, we don't think about it. And, we pay, and so one of the, one of the um, hopes I have from the book and one of the claims I make is that, no, that's something you got to keep in mind. And you got to think about that all the time. It doesn't have to, as you say, you know, you don't have to have a spreadsheet where you look at every single possible um, alternative. But if you just think think to yourself, well, you know, I could spend this 500, you know, $500, uh, you know, could do it here. But if I do it here, what am I giving up? And the moment you ask, you know, what am I giving up? That already um, is a big step forward in trying to figure out how to, you know, how to have a rational um, ordering of your resources. Exactly. Not just what am I getting? What am I giving up precisely? Right. I, I want to shift gears and cover one more of these fallacies before we actually head on to our break. And and this one is, is, uh, is basically you're telling people to remember that, well, I should say the fallacy is that people think that wealth is a zero sum and you, and you're, and you're, and you're saying to people that is not the case. So what is a zero sum in this sense? Like how do, how do you explain that to people? And, and what do you mean by wealth is actually a positive sum? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, you know, I make that the the first chapter because I think that's one of the, uh, maybe the, mo- the, the first of the economic, of what I claim are the economic sins. Um, so zero sum and positive sum. So those are um, terms that uh, economists use. Um, a zero sum exchange um, is one where after the exchange, there's no net increase in overall benefit. So easy way to think about this is, um, you know, suppose you have a laptop and I would like to have your laptop. Um, you know, there are two ways I could get your laptop from you. One way is I could steal it. You know, I could steal it when you're not looking. Um, I could just take it from you. If I just take it from you without your permission, uh, maybe over your protest, I just steal it from you. That's a zero sum transaction in the following sense. So if I steal your laptop, that's plus one laptop for me minus one laptop for you, plus one plus minus one is zero. So that didn't increase the overall value or benefit in the world. It just transferred it from one place to another. Um, And uh, so I benefit certainly from that, but you lose from that. So 
a zero sum transaction is one where one person gains, but at the expense of somebody else, and there's no net increase in value. But compare that to a case where instead of stealing your laptop from you, I give you money. I make you an offer of money for it. Um, I could offer you other things too, but let's, you know, I make you an offer. Um, and let's suppose you voluntarily agree. You say, yep, that's worth it to me. So whatever I offered you, um, that's worth more to you than the laptop. And to me, the laptop's worth more than whatever I offered to you. We have an exchange, voluntary exchange. Now, in that case, it's not a zero-sum transaction. It's a positive-sum transaction. And, um, and what I mean by that is I must have valued the laptop more than whatever I offered you. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have made you the offer. And you must have valued the money more than the laptop. Otherwise, you wouldn't have agreed to it. So that means there's positive value for you, positive value for me. Positive plus positive is a positive. And so that's a positive-sum exchange. Now, the reason that's so important or why I think that's so important is because we tend to think, I think people tend to think that if you have some kind of, an, you know, in an economy or in a society, in a country, if one person is becoming wealthy, maybe, you know, she's, she's a billionaire. If you have a billion, somebody becomes a billionaire. Many people think the only way you could have become a billionaire is by impoverishing other people. In other words, by engaging in zero sum extraction um, where you know you're taking the wealth that's out there there's a kind of a fixed amount of wealth you took you know a big share maybe more than your fair share and you're you know arrogating it to yourself plus for you minus for them that's what pe people sometimes think right exactly and, and so and i think that's behind a lot of the worry about um inequality in wealth you know people think about uh, jeff Bezos. you know should we have our billionaires bad for the economy you know what should we do about jeff the jeff Bezoses of the world who are billionaires um, you know, and maybe there are reasons to worry about Jeff Bezos in particular. You know, I, I, I uh, offer no judgment. Park that. We'll park yeah. that for a bit. I <laughs> offer no judgment about that in particular. But um, uh, but uh, what I would say is um, if you have some kind of a market economy, and all I mean by that is where people um, have uh, have the right to say yes or to say no to an offer or a proposal, um, then um, then the the vast majority of transactions that you actually have, the exchanges, partnerships, um, ex um, transactions that you have are positive sum, not negative sum, meaning both, both parties or all parties to the exchange benefit and they lead to a net increase in benefit. So growing wealth um, doesn't necessarily mean zero sum that somebody else, you know, growing wealth by some doesn't mean that other people are thereby impoverished. It can mean that both parties um, or all parties to the exchange are, are improving and benefiting. And with that, that's actually an excellent time to take our break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with James Audison today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Peter Jaworski, Randy T. Simmons, and Rosa Pagliarello. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with James Audison today. So, James, I think the first half was great. We discussed some of the concepts you introduced at the beginning of your book, and we also managed to talk about two of the uh, deadly economic sins, as you put it. Um, I wanted to move into a third one here, and this one is, is one I, I greatly enjoy thinking and, and talking about myself, which is this idea that there is a great mind out there, either in an individual or a group of people who, who can order things or, or to be a, a man or woman of system, as Adam Smith might put it. So, so what exactly is this fallacy? Uh, uh, thank you for asking about that. Yeah. So um, that's one I think I see, I, I, I believe I detect in a lot of discussions, particularly about policy. Um, and the idea is, so first start on the individual level before we get to policy. Um, so um, Adam Smith made an argument uh, back in the 18th century um, that I call the local knowledge argument. It's a very simple argument. He just says um, that each of us is in possession. Each individual is in possession of knowledge about your, our own situation. So you know your own goals and the opportunities you have, the resources available to you. Um, each of us knows things about our own situation better than other people know about our situation. So each individual tends to have localized knowledge, as it were, about our own individual situations. Um, and Smith says that in order to use our resources wisely, we have to actually capitalize on or exploit that knowledge, you know, knowledge, you know, uh, 
um, knowledge of our opportunities, our situations, our constraints, um, all the things that go into making up um, the, the parameters of our lives. And he concludes from that, that, that it therefore follows that for most people, the person best positioned to make decisions about how you should allocate your resources, given your constraints and your goals and opportunities, is you, is the individual. Now, that doesn't mean we're infallible. We make mistakes all the time. Um, there are some cases in which, you know, maybe people who are very close to us or know a lot about us could actually give us um, advice that might even be better than what we were thinking about doing. Um, but all of that depends on um, localized, detailed knowledge of, of us and our situation. And so the argument is that the further away somebody gets from you, the less they are going to know about you and your situation, which means that if they're the ones making decisions for you, the less likely they are to get them right. Um, so how does that relate to the great mind fallacy? So that's at, at the individual level, but um, at the policy level, what people tend to think, and I think this happens quite a bit, is that we just assume, you know, that we locate some kind of problem that we, you know, something we don't like about society. It could be about, you know, think of any of those policies, trade or labor policy or anything. We locate some kind of problem. Um, and we think that if we empower some third party um, to solve that problem, there will be people in that group, agency, bureau, whatever it is, um, who have knowledge about all the individuals um, and their situations that, that they would be empowered to address. And so I, what I call the great mind fallacy is this idea that um, if we have a, a, if we empower a third, a third party group um, to solve problems for us, we're just assuming that there's some great mind out there, um, some person or, or group that has knowledge that basically no human being can possibly have about all of these individual uh, and discrete individuals and their situations. And so therefore we can trust them um, to make the right kinds of decisions. Um, and in fact, you know, I go a little bit further and maybe this is a little more controversial, but I go a little bit further and say um, that many times um, you hear people advocating policy. So go governmental policy, for example, that could, could only succeed if there were a kind of superhuman mind um, in charge of it. In other words, the kinds of things we ask, the kinds of problems, individualized problems that we ask these, um, these third party groups to solve are problems that could only be solved by somebody who had superhuman knowledge. Um, and and I, I think that that's a very common fallacy. In fact, it might even have evolutionary roots. I mean, if you think about evolution as a theory, you know, the theory of evolution, one of the reasons why uh, many people, you know, in the 19th century when Darwin was uh, proposing it and then, you know, continuing on to today, many, one of the reasons why many people um, are resistant to it um, is because they think that a, um, that a, a large order, um, so, you know, like the evolution of species and the way different species work together, so a large, you know, natural order or ecological order, um, it could not have arisen except by intentional design from somebody or something with a superhuman wisdom. And they seem to think that about, um, about an economy as well. So you can't have it, you know, an economy can't be an emerging, an emerging phenomenon or a spontaneous order. It has to be designed by somebody. So they're really those kind of two parts of the great mind fallacy. One is to assume that there are these people out there with great minds who have all this information. And the other one is to think that you can't have an, an orderly or rational, say, a political economic system unless those people are in charge. And, you know, it's sort of like one of those things where people don't think of the, the economy as marvelous, but they might look at like a, I don't know, an Egyptian pyramid or something and see, see, we can only achieve great things if some great mind with other great minds plans something out and architects it and so on and right, so forth. Exactly. But, in, but in reality, the sort of many parts of the world we live in are, are, are unplanned and spontaneous and an emergent order. And that's an amazing thing in of itself, even if we can't point to an exact landmark of it. And things like, you know, I mean, uh, this calls to mind arguments that other people have made, not just Adam Smith, but, uh, you know, people like Friedrich Hayek. Um, but examples that they use are things like language. You know, um, who enforces the rules of language? Where did language come from? Well, the answer is there is no one person who did any of that. We all do that. We all, you know, all the users of language of, say, English, we're speaking English, all the users of English are in some sense contributing to the language, contributing to its development, also its enforcement. You know, if, uh, if, if somebody's breaking the rules, we enforce the rules. Uh, but there is no single person in charge of it. And, um, and an economy can be something uh, similar to that. Moving on to another one of the... Uh... Dead, deadly economic sins. Some people like to throw something, it's like sort of like a statement out there they, or an attitude that, that progress is inevitable. And I'll, I'll just leave it at that and say, you know, someone listening might go, well, yeah, that, that sort of makes sense. But why are you saying 
That's something that people should avoid even as a starting point. Why Why if I say to you, James, that, you well, you know, that'll take care of itself. Progress is inevitable. Um, why, why are you encouraging me to, to get away from that mentality if I had it? Um, yeah, it's a good question. And and that sometimes, you know, gets me in hot water with or potential hot water with people like uh, Deirdre McCloskey, for example. And there are others, you know, I, I draw a lot on Deirdre McCloskey. So she's a, um, a, um, a quite eminent economic historian. Um, and I draw quite a bit on her work. Um, but um, what, what I think is the problem with the progress is inevitable, what I call the progress is inevitable fallacy is that um, if you think historically, you know, human beings for the vast majority of their, of our existence on the planet have been very poor. So there really hasn't been there for greater than 99% of homo sapiens time on the planet. Um, there's basically no wealth creation at all. And, um, and one large reason for that is what um, goes back to what we were talking about earlier about zero sum versus positive sum transactions. It's because the way any one group of people got wealth was um, as soon as they had enough power over another person or group, they would just conquer them, take it. Um, they would just take it. Um, but when you're stealing other people's land or other people's property, other people's goods or other people, even, even through enslavement, um, you're not increasing wealth. You're just moving it from one place to another. Um, and so um, that was the tried and true you know, way of getting things that human beings, you know, if you think about the great civilizations of, of the past, how did they get so great? Well, that's how they would conquer people, take their things, take their, um, their property, their land, et cetera. Um, so what that means is um, for almost all human history, there was basically no net increase in wealth. And we were um, very consistent, very low levels of uh, overall wealth until around the 17th century and then the 18th century and the 19th century and things began to change for the first time in human history um and so what i suggest in that book is that in my book is that um the kind the levels of wealth that we enjoy today have never existed at any time in human history you know human history goes back a long time it's not just a thousand years or two thousand or even five thousand years homo sapiens have been on the planet for a few hundred thousand years so it's just in the last tiny little fraction of human existence that we've had achieved the level of uh, prosperity that we have. What that suggests um, is that the institutions that have enabled that are both extremely recent um, and they're quite rare. Um, and they really are different from everything that went pre that preceded it. Um, and so I think, in, you know, uh, I um, in the book, I go into much more detail about this. Uh, but, you know, in a nutshell, it's that um, people began to change their their attitudes. They began to change their moral views, um, in particular, thinking that extracting wealth from other people, so engaging in zero-sum transactions, was morally wrong. Um, and the right way to deal with other people is by asking their permission and partnering with people voluntarily. That's a new thing in human history. Um, and, you know, and by the way, we, we still haven't completely mastered that. So um, there are still people and groups um, in the world today where they don't think they have to ask anybody's permission to take from them what they want. Um, but my suggestion is that that, that shift in moral attitude um, is both crucial and fragile, meaning if we don't encourage that, right, that attitude that you have to ask other people's permission before you use their property, um, take their property, um, if we don't inculcate that and, um, and habituate ourselves and our children to that, that can go away very quickly. And I think a lot of the upheavals that we that we saw, you know, even in the 20th century, the 20th century was not that long ago. Um, think about um, all the death and bloodshed and the terrible ways that some groups of people treated other groups of people. So that can go away very easily if we don't understand what those institutional, including the, you know, the, the moral attitudes that are required for increasing prosperity. If we don't understand those and then you know continue to hold ourselves and other people to them, that, that can go away very quickly. Absolutely. And I think that ties nicely into another uh, fallacy that we could talk about here, which is the idea that you say it's a fallacy. The idea is uh, we should be equal as a fallacy. Now, of course, there are many things people could mean when they talk about equality. And it's clear from the book, if, and we, again, we encourage everybody to pick that up and read it. There's, there's lots more than in there than we can get into here today on each of these topics. But um, in the book, it's clear that obviously you're not talking about, you know, treating each other equally and viewing each other as equal uh, counterparts on this planet and treating each other with dignity. That That's not what you mean there. So so which, which meaning and which sense of the word equal do you mean that um, it is mistaken to think about in such a way where we should be it. W which sense are you talking about? Um, specifically in uh, human diversity, what I, what I call plurality. So um, you're right. I, I make. Um, I do argue that um, we should we should think of all human beings as being equal in dignity, as you say. 
Um, and what that means in practice um, is something like we accord every, each person what I call the an opt-out option, which is the right to say no thank you to any proposal that we might make to them, any offer proposal that anybody can say no thank you and we should respect. If they say no thank you, we should respect that out of, um, out of respect for their uh, equal human dignity. But um, I don't think it follows from that that everybody's alike. Um, so equality can sometimes bleed into um, uh, something slightly different. And that's what I think is a fallacy, which I think of as more like conformity. Everybody should have, uh, should be basically the same. Um, and that I think is a mistake because yes, we're all equal in dignity, but we're all very different in our skills, our interests, our abilities, our talents. And the fact that we're different in those ways makes us useful and complementary to one another. That's what enables us to, to benefit from one another. The fact that you know things that I don't, um, I know things that you don't, I can do things that you can't and vice versa. And that's true for, for all of us. That enables us to be to complement one another and to benefit one, one another through association um, and partnership. Um, and so my, my argument is that that may well also lead to differentials in wealth. Um, so the fact, and, and, but that's in many cases entirely innocent. I mean, in other words, it, it's not necessarily um, an injustice if, you know, and I'll give you a particular example. So my best friend from high school um, uh, went into medicine. So he's a medical doctor and he's now a board certified physician. Um, for most of our respective careers, um, he's been making about 10 times as much money as I make. So if you just look at our relative wealth, huge discrepancy. And you might think, well, there's some kind of injustice there. I had thought about going into medicine when I was uh, in uh, as an undergraduate, but you know, I, uh, my interest took me in a different direction. But what I suggest is that if you only look at the wealth, you're not looking at all of the history and the uniqueness to the identities of the people that went into that. Medicine is suited to him. It's not suited to me. And, you know, and the fact that I could potentially have gone into medicine doesn't mean it was the right thing for me to do. I'm very happy with what I'm doing and I'm and I understand the trade-offs that I made and I accept those trade-offs. So the fact that one person makes more money than another person doesn't mean that either one of them um, has necessarily made the wrong choice. They might be doing the best thing for them given their identities, their passions, the things they're interested in life. Um, so um, so uh, what I argue is that what we shouldn't focus so much on is just the mere fact of discrepancy in wealth itself but rather how did that wealth, the, those discrepancies, how did they, how did that arise? What's the history that led to it? And, you know, if you, if you say, well, you know, here's somebody who got wealthy through extraction. So through force or fraud or theft or, okay, you know, that's an injustice. Um, but if it's just um, a series of choices, one individual and other individuals made over the course of their lives about what mattered to them, you know, in the moment um, and as they're charting out the, um, the course of their own lives, that's not necessarily something to worry about. In fact, it could be something to celebrate because it enables people to be different and to follow their own individual paths. And I wanted to move us into the two final uh, economic sins. And, and I did, for those that will go in and check out the book, they'll note that I did this slightly out of order for this chat. And, and I did that consciously because there was two that I wanted to leave specifically to the end uh, for, for the sake of this chat, although I think the order in the book makes total sense. One of these fallacies is the idea that economics is amoral. And before you get into answering why that's not the case, can you tell me a bit more about wh wh why you think people come to this conclusion? They think that economics is this cold, dismal science that just looks at people as, frankly, insignificant, uh, uh, other than the fact that they can be rational calculators. Well, I think, um, yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, part of the reason for that, the part of the blame for that lies with economists themselves, um, because, you know, they like to measure things. Um, and what you can't measure is, you know, a person's character. What you can measure is what do they buy or what do they do? Um, so, you know, if you're if you're running your regressions and wanting to do mathematical analysis, you have to count things. And so you, you tend to pay attention to the things you can count. And so what can sometimes happen is that, like you think about labor economics, you know, it, it can be that it's um, we reduce or we simplify all the complexity of any individual person to just a unit, you know, you're just a fungible unit that can go in one direction or another, or, I mean, in a different way, you know, economists talk about utility um, and they'll sort of collapse everything, anything that matters to you, whether it's a moral thing or any, you know, anything else, we put it all in a single utility function, which, which makes it seem as if economists think that there's no real, um, there's no real qualitative difference among the kinds of things we might want to, uh, to uh, we might want to seek or the things you might desire. It's all just a matter of quantity. 
Um, and I think that um, that's partly why a lot of people think that economics is really just about sort of, you know, counting things up, you know, counting the number of marbles in this urn and the number of marbles in this urn. And some of those marbles are human beings, but they're just marbles. And, um, and so they think it's amoral. Um, the other part of that, though, I think is um, a view that people have about profit seeking. So if you think about, you know, what does a for-profit company do? It seeks profit. I mean, it's going to do a, a number of, going to engage in a number of activities, but the activities are in the service of seeking a profit. Um, and so people can often think, and they do often think, people often claim that um, that companies, especially in a market economy, um, will champion profits over the people that, um, that they're working with or employing or partnering to create the profit. They view the profit as the thing we want and human beings as just the tools or instruments, you know, like any other tool or instrument to achieve that. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think there are plenty of examples of exactly that. Um, and so th there, that can happen. And you think about um, you know, the way some companies are run. Yeah, they can. I mean, there are plenty of examples of CEOs and companies that tend to view their employees basically as just fungible atoms, you know, that anyone could be exchanged for any, any other one. Um, but I think economics as a discipline doesn't necessarily, uh, isn't necessarily susceptible to that criticism. And the reason is, think about it on the individual level. Um, think about all the things that matter to you. Um, you know, some of them are going to be relatively, you know, amoral, you know, do, do you like uh, orange socks or black socks? Okay, you know, there's not a, there's no particular moral content to that. You just have preferences, um, vanilla or chocolate ice cream. Um, but there are some things that matter to you that actually are moral values. Um, so, you know, it can be very high level, like I want to be um, a good steward of the environment, or I want to engage in sustainable practices. Um, it could be other kinds of moral values, maybe have religious commitments or other kinds of commitments. Um, what, what I suggest is that economics um, has a set, a powerful set of tools that, ena that enables us to understand human behavior, but those tools are powerful enough to at least make some headway in accommodating those kinds of concerns too. And, and you can think about it like this. Um, suppose you say um, environmental sustainability is an important moral goal of mine. So that's important to you. If it is, suppose, you know, we just stipulate that that's important to you. Maybe it's not the only thing that's important to you, but it is an important goal. Um, well, likely then, if it is important to you, it's going to alter the choices you make. So um, there are going to be some things you're going to say no to in light of that, some things you might say yes to or seek out in light of that. If you're making those kinds of choices, some of those choices are going to find their way into the things that you do in an economy, um, what products you buy or don't buy, what company you might uh, invest in or not invest in, et cetera. Um, that will suggest, and this is sort of the final stage of it, that those moral values then translate into choices that you make, and those choices that you make will in part affect um, the economy. So an economist, or you know, if you think about a, a for-profit company, if it wants to have customers and clients and you know, future more potential customers and clients, it's going to have to pay attention to what matters to you, and that's going to include your moral values. Um, as long as your moral values actually do have some salience in you, meaning they do actually affect the choices that you make, um, then that's itself is going to have an effect um, in the economy as well. So I don't think economics is necessarily immoral. In fact, I think that um, economic calculation on the part of, say, companies or even individuals is going to have to take into account the moral values that people have. I mean, all of the things that matter to people, including moral values. Right. Absolutely. I mean, save for some exceptions where, for instance, a business might literally be in the business of manipulating finances or something, you know, marginal, like things like that. In general, businesses do not continue to become wealthy or hit on the right part of their market because they're just moving things around on a balance sheet. They, as you said, are taking into account preferences and, and desires and values, et cetera. That's how it works. Absolutely. And that includes, you know, that includes also for, you know, not just customers, but also employees. I mean, if you, you know, if you're running a company and you want to keep good employees or attract good employees, you're going to have to think about what matters to them and figure out what matters to them and see if you can deliver that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the the final fallacy I want to talk to you about as, as we reach to, you know, the end part of our conversation here. And it's one that I'm happy to leave to the end because uh, those that have been listening along so far that uh, that might, uh, you know, think of themselves as like pretty, pretty pro-capitalist, happy people, happy to listen to everything here. This Some of, might be just introduced these concepts. Other might Others might have gone from one to six with us and said like, absolutely, this is stuff that I wish other people people understood. But in the last chapter, you, you remind everybody, and, and this is indeed a very important economic fallacy to avoid, 
that regardless of what angle you're coming from in the conversation politically or otherwise or whatever knowledge level you have about these matters, you basically tell people, remember, here's one big fallacy. If you think to yourself that markets are perfect, you're, you're, in, you're in trouble. So, so wh- why is it the case that you, you, number one, you left this as the last big deadly sin and number two, uh, your thoughts on markets? They're not perfect. It's important to highlight. No, they are. They are not perfect. And you're right. You know, I I left them to the end of the book because I thought that, you know, if if you read the book, you know, the chapters in the order of the book, you might you might be coming to the conclusion that, holy cow, markets are this perfect mechanism for allocating resources. Um, And I will say, and I think this is important to emphasize that markets are perhaps one of the greatest um, mechanisms we have ever discovered for aggregating knowledge. And th- there just doesn't seem to be any other, we haven't yet come up with any other system for aggregating the disparate knowledge that individuals have and allowing people who don't even know each other to capitalize and to um, benefit themselves on the basis of knowledge that other people have. So it, um, it is a very powerful mechanism, but that doesn't mean it's perfect. Um, and, I, and I argue that there, there are two ways or two important aspects of the of uh, that fall out of this fallacy of thinking that markets are perfect. Um, one of them is a, just a general claim that there is no human institution that is perfect. Uh, perfection is not on offer in human life. Um, and you know that connects a little bit to the great mind fallacy as well. We tend to think that if we just get the right politician or the right policy or the right law or whatever in place, then we're going to have utopia. We will not, we will never have that. We are fallen imperfect creatures. And so perfection is not on offer. Um, but that said, um, one of the things that I think that markets um, in particular, so yeah, th- there's no such thing as a per- per- any kind of perfect institution, um, but I think markets are very powerful um, for certain kinds of things, but not for other kinds of things. Um, and one of the things that they can, um, that one area where I think they can be inappropriate um, is in interpersonal intimate relationships. Um, so you think about the family, for example. I mean, imagine if uh, you ran a family as if it were a market economy. Um, so, you know, how much do I have to give you to let me sit in the lazy boy when we watch the movie tonight? Um, you know, that that would not be good. What you have in a family instead of what it's different from what you have in a large market economy um, is a group of people who are uh, who not only know each other very well, um, but they tend to have the same sort of, and they are organized on you know, one conception of the good life. Um, so they're part of a joint project, uh, a, a joint life project. Um, that doesn't mean they all agree about everything, but they have a sense of, you know, we understand the importance of our family and the kinds of things that matter to us. And the range of, of you know, conceptions of the good is very narrow within a family. Those are the kinds of situations where um, market, uh, market policies or market principles might not be appropriate. The important thing to think about um, in that case is that those are the exceptions to the rule. When you start applying, you know, the the principles of say unity um, and solidarity that apply appropriately to a family, if you want to extend them beyond a family, that's where you get into trouble because you begin to see that well, there are very different conceptions of the good. You know, you get to a country the size of you know, say the United States or something, 330 million people, very different conceptions of the good. Many of them not only don't know each other intimately, they don't know each other at all. Um, and so if you want them to be able to cooperate, nonetheless, you can't rely on a shared conception of the good, which would, appro- which would be appropriate in a family. You have to rely on something else. And so um, what markets can do is they can help coordinate and allow people to, um, to use the different levels of knowledge and different kinds of knowledge and interests that other people have in, that doesn't require intimate uh, personal knowledge, intimate personal relationships. So, doesn't mean it's perfect because we still there are still plenty of breakdowns. Um, and I think that um, that thinking that a market can solve all problems, um, either in the macro or even in the micro in these smaller um, in these smaller social situations, I think those are mistakes as well. And our time is, is winding down here, and uh, I want to get one more question over to you before we head to our formal wrap up, which is which is the following. And at the end of the book after the main parts and the tour through the uh, deadly economic sins, you spend a little chunk of time on privacy and calling attention how we should value our freedom to say no, for example. And you mentioned this earlier in our chat too. And then you even talked about the idea of being surveilled, whether it be 
you know, but by the government or by, you know, for instance, corporations with, without our knowledge and mass data collection. Um, I think you tied it nicely into your ideas at the end of the book, but someone just listening to me here might think like, that was an odd thing to plug at, at the very end of a book uh, of this manner. You know, you could have just did the seven sins and did a two paragraph conclusion and ca- called it a day. And I think it still would have been great. So I wanted to talk to you a bit, a bit about that before, again, our, our formal wrap up. Why was this? It's, it's clearly important to you. So let me ask, why was this so important to you to pair it with this kind of book. Yeah, and, and uh, you're right that it, it might seem a bit out of place for the um, for a lot of the argument for the rest of the book, especially given today. You know, when when basically you know there's so much information about all of us that's available to everybody, and it's increasing all the time. So you know, somebody coming along and saying, "Oh, we we should have some privacy." Um, so somebody might say, "Well, that ho- that horse has left the barn." You know, there, there's no there's, um, and I understand all that. But you know, here's the here's the argument I make. Um, you know, going back to where we we began our conversation, if you want to have a chance at leading what I call a rationally more um, a, a rational moral ordered life, you have to have some sense of um, you know when I'm at the end of my life, what kind of life do I want to have led such that it was um, that I would think it was worth having been led. That that requires us to think about to develop a kind of um, story about our lives. We have to understand ourselves. We have to understand the opportunities available to us, and we have to understand the ranking of the of what actually matters to us. And we um, construct you know, a, a plan for how do I achieve? What do I do today that leads to the goals I have in in a year, and five years, and ten years, so that at the end of my life I can um, have a favorable end of life judgment. In order to do that, and here's uh, how it relates to privacy. In order to do that. Um, I have to be able to um, not just deliberate about what that plan for life would be, but I have to be able to say yes to some things and then say no to indefinitely many other things. That means I have to be able to close the door, either literally or figuratively, um, to lots of things, opportunities, and people. And I think for me to be able to develop, for any individual to be able to develop a coherent sense of self, you have to be able to to say no. You have to be able to close the door to lots of things. And we tend to think of freedom about being saying, you know, the ability to say yes. But I, but my suggestion is that before you can say yes, you have to be able to say no to a whole lot of other things. And I think that's crucially important to developing a sense of identity. So, you know, I, I use this metaphor of closing the door. We have to be able to say no. And if other people want information about us or um, want us to partner with them or they make demands on us, every person should be able to say no to many of those things. And really, that's the only way to develop a proper and coherent sense of self and identity. And with that, I'd, I'd like to move us into our formal wrap-up. So James, let me say, uh, it was a great chat. And let me say again to the, those listening that uh, we, we definitely didn't cover uh, even a sliver of, uh, of what's in the book. We basically provide a high-level tour. So we definitely encourage everybody to check that out for themselves and, and go check out James's book. But James, we, we, we did talk about a lot in and of itself. So let's try and bring what we did talk about full circle and try and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me officially ask you, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to here on the, the seven deadly economic sins, or rather economic thinking in general? If you wanted to leave someone with one or two or a, f- a few thoughts, if anything, from this conversation, what would those be? Uh, thank you for that question. You're right. We have covered a lot of ground, but there's uh, you know m- much more stuff, as you say, in the book. Um, um, I guess what I would say is, you know, if you think about the seven deadly sins, not the seven deadly economic sins, but, you know, this, the sort of standard list of the seven deadly sins, you know, everybody's heard of them. Not everybody can list them all. Um, you know, um, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. Um, the reason that those are called deadly sins is, um, is not only because they lead to destruction in our personal lives, um, and also in our relations with other people, but also because we're particularly susceptible to them. They, they can seem so alluring, even seducing in the moment, and it's very hard to master them all. I think there's something similar with economic sense. So there are lots of um, beliefs that seem almost commonsensical about uh, the way economics must work um, that, um, that in fact are not the way economics works. And there's really just a handful of them that if we can incorporate them into our thinking about our own lives, and then in our evaluation of you know, the larger level policy. Um, I think it can lead to real benefit for ourselves and benefits for others. So um, it, it doesn't mean, and I don't um, want the, I don't uh, have as an aim in the book to tell you what your goals should be. I mean, I have my views about that, but, you know, I guess we all do. Um, but um, the, 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 the 
reason I focus on those uh, particular economic sins is really what I would like for people to think about is um, I have things I want to achieve in life. Most of those things I can achieve only with other people, cooperating with other people. Um, a lot of our time is going to be spent on trying to figure out how to achieve that. Many times we will make mistakes in our reasoning if we don't um, incorporate into our reasoning um, these, um, if we don't, as I say, exorcise these, not exercise like, you know, on the treadmill, but exorcise like getting rid of um, these fallacies um, and they will actually impede our ability to achieve and cooperate with others in a flourishing way, the way we would like to. So um, if you think about these fallacies, um, incorporate them into your evaluation of your own life and then evaluation of policy, my, my hope my guess, uh, my speculation is that um, it'll help you achieve the kinds of goals you what you have and the goals that actually matter to you um, in a much better way than you might otherwise be able to. I think we'll leave it at that. James Audison, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.